0: You're listening to the Lean Six Sigma for Good podcast. We help you learn how Lean and Six Sigma concepts can be applied to nonprofits, NGOs, and not-for-profit organizations. Visit us at LeanSixSigmaForGood.com. Well,
1: my guest today is Katie Anderson. Welcome, Katie. It's great to meet you, finally.
2: Yeah, thanks. I'm so thrilled to be here and, and finally get a conversation together as well.
1: Yes. So... um I want to go a little bit into your background. So if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, your history with work and how it led you into continuous improvement work and lean. Um, and then we'll get into discussions about nonprofit work you've done, but I um, really want to, want to dig into your really interesting background because I think that's very unique compared to other people in the lean community.
2: Yeah, thanks. And, you know, when I look back in, you know, my almost 30 year career at this point. You know, that the uniting thread is really always about learning and being connected with people globally. I consider myself a learning enthusiast. And that's really been like such such a uniting thread. I started my career off thinking I was going to be a professor and doing healthcare policy research for many years. I actually have a was awarded a Fulbright scholarship and did my master's degree in Australia. Um, and so I have a deep passion for healthcare as well and came at it from this this real desire to make a positive impact in the world. But through those years, I also realized that I really like to engage with people um, directly, one-on-one and see real tangible outcomes of the work that I'm doing. And while I felt really passionate about the research I was doing, it didn't sort of satisfy that uh, that human connection as much for me. And I, I moved into working in hospitals and healthcare systems. And that's when I moved back to the United States in the San Francisco Bay Area where I'm from and where I live now, and took a role at Stanford Children's Hospital where I got exposed to lean and continuous improvement and was one of sort of the fire starters for bringing lean thinking and practice into the organization. I took another senior level role at another local um, Bay Area health system. And then 10 years ago almost, started my own consulting practice to help broader organizations, you know, know, all different sizes and industries really take on the leadership behaviors that support cultures of learning and continuous improvement. And then fortuitously during that time, my family had an opportunity to move to Japan for a year and a half. And that some of the output of that is my uh, best-selling book, Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn, Lessons from Toyota Leader Isao Yoshino on a Lifetime of Continuous Learning and the Japan study tours that I lead as well. Um, so, you know, life sometimes it moves in a in an unpredictable pattern, but when you look back, there are uniting threads through it all.
1: That's very cool. Um, tell me a little bit more about that fire starter activity. How did, yeah. the, was the organization already doing it, and you were one of the early people identified to go through it, or was that something you learned in school and some of your studies and tried to bring in? How'd that work?
2: No. Yeah, so, I was hired into the performance improvement department and we were a small cadre of you know great smart passionate problem solvers um, who were assigned to go out to help solve important problems in the organization and we didn't really have a methodology um you know actually one of the first few months that i joined the organization you know someone said oh i've heard about this 5s thing like let's do a 5s project and so i got really i got intrigued by that and the involving people who do the work in improving the work, and uh, I started asking my boss, "Could we, you know, get some more training?" And so, uh, you know, my the learning enthusiast of me was like, "I'll go out and assess things." So I was sent up to Seattle to assess some of the trainings that a consulting group was putting on. They were doing work um, with healthcare organizations up in Seattle, and then we decided to bring them down. And so I got to be one of the first people really trained up in leading uh, rapid process improvement or Kaizen workshops. Um, and then it, you know, me and uh, my boss and some of the other people on our team started really just bringing this into the thinking into the organization through the work that we were doing there. So it was, and it was exciting time, but we were just really seeking ways to engage people meaningfully in solving really important problems to provide their children and their families. So, um, it was just, it made a lot of sense and it was great. And now it's, it's really rewarding because I still... Um, and connected with Stanford Children's um, Healthcare. And they have continued what they call the Packard Quality Management System, PQMS, since then. And so I feel really, um, it really makes me happy to know that the things that we started have sustained and embedded through the leadership and subsequent you know, continuous improvement practitioners taking it forward and just making it part of the way the work is done.
1: Yeah, that is really rewarding and um, to look back and see that it didn't just die off when you leave and that yep. it continues and that um, you feel like you left a little piece of something that helped it sustain. Yeah, that's really Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. How, how about uh time frame on on that? Because as I was trying to remember back, it was probably I didn't hear much on lean and healthcare until maybe early to mid 2000s.
2: Yeah, so that would have been, uh, well, I moved back from Australia in 2006. So that would have been around 2000. Probably okay. I started working there at the end of 2006. So probably, you know, or 2007 timeframe, and I was in the organization for six years, um, and then took on the director of the lean promotion office role for another large healthcare system. So it really, with a CEO, COO, who had come from the Seattle region as well. So Seattle had really been a hotbed of yeah. lean thinking and healthcare. And so we were really fortunate to um, have got, you know, we're relatively close by on the West Coast to be able to tap into that learning and resource
1: because I had Virginia Mason and Seattle Children's. Yeah, it was, other. Seattle, and
2: then Group group Health um, was, okay. and that was worked with, um, so the CEO who hired me at, at um, Palo Alto Medical Foundation, part of Sutter Health was James Hereford, and now he's the CEO uh, of Fairview Health System in, um, in Minnesota. Okay. So a real um, great lean leader.
1: So even more challenging is trying to figure out how this works. I mean, I guess you do have some models in Seattle and other healthcare organizations, but that was yeah, still pretty early in terms of does this stuff work in, in healthcare? Yeah,
2: totally. And, you know, I feel like my lean learning journey uh, really parallels that of the organization too. Like, you know, we we started off doing projects and focused, you know, and you know, rapid process improvement projects and, you know, trying to, you know, making passionate, awesome changes to things, but then it wasn't really sustaining, realizing that we really also need a management system and that our role needed to not be, you know, the the superhero problem-solving experts coming in to do all the problem-solving, but really creating the structures and the systems that allowed the people who do the work to solve the problems and then help support the management team to really embed a new way of managing and leading for continuous improvement. So my that was a you know I think we were all sort of learning that, at least in healthcare and probably other organizations too or other industries as well, that it can't just be episodic problem-based you know things that it really has to be from a behavior change and a systemic management system change. And that's really what sort of got me very excited and kind of changed I wouldn't say change but really influenced, um, the direction of my career at that point, getting very um, passionate about how do we really create the behaviors that that support learning in our organizations, which also requires us to be um, brave enough to step aside to not be the hero- heroic problem solver all the time, but to give space and the structure, structures for other people to do, um, you know, to to solve problems and create capability.
1: And I think you touched on that, but you know, how would you kind of summarize that role of a leader in an organization to try and drive change? You know, mm. What are some of those important pieces? And I think you mentioned some of that is giving good direction and letting the teams mm. kind of take and figure out the problems, but give them the guidance and support to do that. Mm. But what are some of those other things that you well, would this... encourage or coach people mm. to do as leaders?
2: So the, you know, twofold. So the first is just a very simple framework that, uh, I developed through the course of working with Toyota leader, Sal Yoshino, and the development of uh, the book that I mentioned, Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn. And it stemmed out of a conversation, or actually not even a conversation, the very first time I met him, which was he was you know, speaking at a conference about his role as a manager. And he, he said, my, you know, my role was to give the person reporting to me. In this case, it was John Shook, who uh, many people in the lean space know as the chairman of the Lean Global Network. The you know and who wrote the seminal book on A3 thinking, managing to learn, and was uh, the first non-Japanese employee Toyota Motor Corporation, and Mr. Yoshino was his boss. But he said, you know, my my aim as a manager was to give John or whomever was reporting to me a mission or target, and then support him while he figured out how to reach that target. And I was aware as I was developing John, I was developing myself, and it really had this aha moment to me then. And then it was consistent with everything he said about the leaders that he worked with and how he supported other people. There's a threefold purpose of a leader. And if we can do these three things, we're going to be so successful. The first is to set the direction. Like, where do we need to go? What are the challenges that need to be overcome? How do we create alignment and challenge there? The second is provide the support. So create those systems, the structures, the coaching um, that will allow people to um, be successfully move towards achieving those goals. And then the third is being willing to develop ourselves because it's hard to do both of those. And so to have the humility to know that we aren't perfect and if we can set direction, provide support, develop ourselves, we're really gonna be able to foster this um, culture of learning. And I call that the um, the leading to learn framework. And then within that providing support, there are some simple things that are, that are maybe challenging for us because they're outside of the habits that we usually do. But if we can wanna close the gaps in our, you know, performance of our organization, you know, continuous improvements about closing the gap from where we are today and where we need to be. We can think about behaviors following what I call the gaps, G-A-P-S. So go see, go to Gemba, go to the place the work happens with a purpose of showing that you really care about people and that you want to check on process and making sure things are going, you know, continuously improving. And second is asking questions. You know, we so often lead in from this habit of telling and offering our suggestions or giving the answer, often from a place that comes from, you know, a good, you know, well-intended, but it really takes away um, capability and opportunity for people to contribute. So how can we ask more questions? P for pause, pause to give people space to think, pause to slow down because learning takes a little bit of time. So we need to, we're so focused on do, 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 do that we're not really Pausing and really giving that space, and the then the last S S is study or reflect. And we, especially in in the U.S., but in other you know Western cultures too, we are so fast-paced. We see action as the the we are rewarded for action, but not necessarily the thinking part, the reflection, the study. And so, when we can create more of a habit of having some study and some reflection, we will be much more effective at learning and supporting learning in our organizations. So. Yeah, set direction, provide support, develop yourself, and then GAPS: go see, ask questions, pause, and study, reflect. And it, the, if we can do those three things, everything—or those, I guess, are seven—but we can do those things. That is really what's going to drive a culture of continuous improvement. I mean, there's so many other things too, but to me, those what's what comes back to the core and the essence of um, those behaviors.
1: Yeah, and I think you know you mentioned earlier you you start off with. Kaizen events, start off with tools, right? And then you evolve and realize, oh, wait, this won't work fully or sustain unless the Mm. leadership piece is in place. And so I think you did a great job just summarizing those things that have to be there for the rest of it to work and be successful and to keep going and build it so that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, it's still going and it's effective and they're getting results. also like your comment on the, you know, the, Desire for action and wanting to fix the problem right now, and management has ideas on how to do that, and they are accidentally making making things worse <laughs> by telling them what to do, and um, then people don't get a chance to learn and practice and try out and yeah. be heard. So that stifles their creativity and opportunities to, yeah. to get better and fix their own processes and take get engagement there. Um, so yeah, I think these, yeah. these principles and ideas are really important.
2: Yeah. And, you know, to, to continue on that thread there too, it's, you know, of course in a, in an emergency or in a crisis, or there's a safety issue. Yes, of course we need to jump in to tell to solve and fix it, but especially in healthcare, we're kind of trapped into this crisis mentality all the time, but the reality is not everything is this emergent situation that has to be fixed right now and can have a little bit more space for, um, for giving people opportunity to solve some problems and and um, and contribute their ideas as well.
0: Help uh, transition
1: me from healthcare work to the Japan trip, and then connecting up with Mr. Yoshino and yeah. your relationship there and then into the book.
2: So uh, well, why don't we start off the, you know, the, I met Mr. Yoshino right before my family moved to Japan. This was an opportunity for my husband's job, which was just, you know, a great serendipity of life where I, I was thinking, is there a more perfect country for me to move to next? You know, I'd lived, we already talked, I, you know, did my master's degree in Australia. I'd lived in London, the Dominican Republic in Spain before that. So I'd, oh. very international person, uh, but I was, was thrilled with this opportunity. And Mr. Yoshino had given me his card at conference where I heard him speaking with John Shook and said, when you move to Japan, uh, look me up and I will take you to Toyota City and we'll spend the day together. And I really thought it was going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity. But I was like, I was kind of giddy. I was like, all right, this is going to be awesome. I made my husband take the day off of work. um, Because really, I was just like, this is a one off. And we just had this great connection, really wonderful conversation. He's just such a, he's a really um, kind and caring and uh, interesting person. And I would just jump on the bullet train, take the ninety-minute ride from Tokyo down to Nagoya. Um, I consider it my yoshino San commute, and spend the day with him frequently while we were living in Japan. And, and through that time, and I was writing a blog, and he gave me permission to write about our conversations. You know, people were really interested in what uh, I was learning from him, and what I was learning more broadly. I was going to companies and sharing, you know, sharing what I was learning you know, being the learning enthusiast, I didn't want to just learn from myself. I wanted to have, you know, what an incredible opportunity to live in Japan. So I wanted to al- allow people to come on that journey with me. Uh, you know, when I moved back to the United States, we stayed connected. Um, we're talking right now in what is now my office, but also the guest room. And he stayed in this room before, and we've had collaborations. We had this glimmer of an idea of collaborating on a book. Um, and of course it morphed and changed as well. Um, but once we sat down doing purposeful interviews, and I really was du- digging in deep, and it actually it was great because all my master's degree and my all my um, research, the years of doing uh, research in public health policy was all qualitative based. So I was really leveraging those skills, maybe not in the same way, but really applying them for the creation of this book. It became very clear to me that um, there was just so much history and so much wisdom that needed to be shared, and when I let myself unfold it through the narrative of his life rather than trying to box it into a specific story really the writing quite uh, flowed quite quite well from there so uh, yeah we published the book right after the pandemic started in um <laughs> summer of 2020 and um i've been so just so grateful for the positive reaction it's had and the impact it's had on on so many people it's been translated into you know Many languages, a few more coming out this year. I just signed some more contracts, and just to know that people are learning from um, this great special man, Uh, and then I also now lead tours to Japan, uh, you know, for executives to go on learning trips. I did um, two trips, one in 2018 and one in 2019. Had two planned for 2020. We know nothing in 2020 happened like we thought it would, and I'm thrilled that I'm going to be back in Japan in May of 2023 and October, and then just set dates for next May 2024 as well. So. There's nothing like going to Gemba and I love hosting yeah. people yeah so it's just it I you know this gets back to the so the two threads I said about me are being a learning enthusiast and an international person so it's like the interweaving of these two passions of mine together
1: um you were talking about your blog is that still available on your website Fast yes articles? all we, yeah.
2: yeah it's evolved <laughs> you know yeah. it's been set what over gosh, almost eight years now, but yes, it's yeah. um, all those articles that I wrote from way back when are still there. You can go read about my early days of um, especially being really curious about the difference between Japanese culture and uh, U.S. culture, and also um, sort of the assumptions we might make about how um, how how lean or <laughs> kaizen-oriented is all of Japan. So some, some good insights yeah. there.
1: But well, even when you're for, you know, simulating those, giving the business card. It, mm-hmm. I had, it had one trip to to, to Japan for, for work and yeah, it was very conscious around the, um, mm. how important that business card is. And it's not something you just grab put in your pocket. Oh. Like, you need to look at it, stare at it, yeah. read through yes. it and be very diligent and be very like purposeful yes. about the exchange of the card. And that was really sunk in with me on that trip.
2: Yes. And well, you know, I mean—I didn't have business cards when I moved to Japan and nor did I have a business logo. And so I knew really quickly I needed to get cards made. So I told the business the, the Meishi company to put the word for intention because it's always been a, a word I've uh, found really powerful on my card. And so that ended up being my logo for a little bit of time. If you
0: like this topic, please check out the Lean Six Sigma for Good book series with the subtitle Lessons from Gemba. We have recently released volume 2 in paperback and ebook, and we will have the audiobook ready later in 2023. Volume 1 is already available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Within each volume, there are 8 chapters written by different Lean Six Sigma practitioners who have applied their skills to nonprofits, NGOs, not-for-profit organizations, and government agencies. Proceeds from the book sales are split evenly and go to the nonprofit selected by each author. Go to LeanSixSigmaForGood.com or search Amazon for Lean Six Sigma for Good to find the book series. These books make a great gift for your process improvement team or someone you know who works in a not-for-profit
2: organization. And that's the where I got the, I discovered the deeper nuance and meaning of the word intention coming from symbols meaning heart and direction. And I've really seen that like intention now is, is more than just something cerebral like, oh, set your intention we have to take action to embody our intention. So to manifest it. So it's both who do we want to be and what impact we want to have, what's inside our heart and what actions do we need to take to align with that and actually create our intention into reality. I, yeah, but I I have been so ingrained about how to, you know, present uh, business cards correctly that even Hmm. now, like when I, when I give people like say my book, which is, you know, I, I turn it around because you, the proper thing is you turn it to face the other person so they can read it. so when i when I'm get when I sign books and I give it back to people, I don't just hand it back to them. I turn it around and hand it to them. It's so ingrained in me, the proper way to hand <laughs> someone something. It's about the emotonashi, the service you provide to someone else. and so you you face it for them, not for you. and just those right. little touches. that's those are some of the specialness about J- Japanese culture that I'm thrilled to be experiencing yeah, now yeah. again, yeah.
1: Let's see. What um, the book? Uh, so, what are you working on now? You said you've had your consulting mm. uh, yeah. work going on for ten years now. What kind of clients are you? Do you work with? Um, what do you? Who are you serving? What kind of things are you offering?
2: Yeah, so I I really see myself as that trusted advisor for people who are leading change in their organizations, usually around trying to create continuous improvement um, learning culture, coming in to be their trusted advisor to help coach and mentor and be a sounding board to them, as well as coming in and and doing, you know, trainings or um, customized learning experiences, sort of that outside perspective, come in and infuse energy or a new perspective that maybe they don't have in the organization around problem solving, thinking and coaching um, to really help them accelerate the, the change that they're trying to, to launch. Uh, and it's interesting, I've, you know, I work with companies and leaders all around the world, but I'm finding that the, sort of the, the majority of the companies I'm working with are these large complex organizations who are really trying to bring back more of or bring into their companies more of this human centered, people centered, um, leadership focused uh, culture of continuous improvement. Maybe they've been doing a lot of projects and very technical oriented, but that, you know, those leaders, those internal change leaders see a different way. And so they're, they're looking for some outside support to really help, help bring that in. So it's an absolute thrill to be partnering with these, you know, great, great change leaders um, who I can, you know, just help accelerate the, the vision that they already have. And of course I've worked, you know, I've with you know other size companies too but it's interesting it's like large government agencies multinational you know biotech or you know manufacturing companies large healthcare systems all of those really complex organizations um but it's really thrilling to see where so many people want that heart back into um business and leadership so uh, we, we're gonna do it bring it yeah bringing the heart and the connect the minds right and it works i mean that's it the does best part. it's it's, yeah. it's actually a better way to
1: do it so it is a better way it's just a um, and it's great for everyone. So, yeah, I think I, I feel that as well. You know, I think there's really that focus, not so much on results, although those are important, but mm. really thinking more broadly around it. And that's kind of the the purpose line of this whole podcast and, and work is like the treble bottom line piece of this, that it's got to involve the, the people and the environment and also, the organization and its goals too, but um, balancing those instead of it being all about the financials and money and you make decisions on return on investment and, and payback and financial savings and stuff like that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, of course, you know, even Toyota wants the outcomes it needs to survive in business and serve, you know, create value for its customers, but they see the process and developing people is the way that you get to that. Um, there's this amazing company I take people to in Japan as well, and its uh, chairman is considered a sensei, uh, the sensei of many Toyota leaders, and their whole um, approach is like happiness is our purpose. And the the chairman wrote a book in which it, he said, um, you know, profit is excrement. It's a natural byproduct of a healthy functioning company. It can't be the, the goal of it, you know, so we our focus should be all these other things and then profit will come. Uh, return and in investment will come if we focus on those right things.
1: Yeah, I think, and that's a better way to lead. And uh, for management, I think that's even a better way to operate, you know, when they have that uh, focus on the happiness and desire and, and engaging their people and learning and getting to know their people and, mm. and that's, they're going to like their work better. And it's turns out it's more effective. So, it's a no brainer. But. I know,
2: but it it requires us to make a shift, right? And so, yeah. you know, we have to let go of that command and control or the heroics and the and the saving the day or that this concept that the leader has to have the right answer. Um, and, and see leadership in a very different way. And um, you know, it it's that's hard for all of us because we were trained from our education of. Who can put their hand up the fastest with the right answer? And
0: yeah. you know
2: we're rewarded for being great independent contributors earlier in our career. So it's almost like this—you know—the the, the rug's been pulled out of us, and we're not given those—we're not those capabilities haven't been as like developed in us if unless we've worked directly with people who've been able to model the way. And so I see a lot of our role as like um, internal and external change agents is helping helping support leaders through that transition to see that different way and to have a safe spa- a safe space to practice and to really connect with that heart and impact they want to have because i i think most people really do want to have a you know a meaningful impact and to create connection and achieve goals and it's about seeing how their actions may or may not be aligning with with achieving that it's not very many people who are like, "Oh, I want to crush the people," and you know, <laughs> be like, "No." Who do I yell at today? You know, yeah. I, I mean, they, start they have with. something else going on <laughs> in their lives if that's what right. you know driving them. Um, but yeah, so people want to do the right thing; they just don't necessarily know how.
1: Um, going back to healthcare a little bit, is there any projects or successes that stand out that you think about or remember? Um,
2: yeah. Well, there's so many, particularly from Stanford Children's Hospital, um, where I, my hands were much more like in, you know, I was like doing a lot of the improvement work side by side with um, the, you know, the the clinicians and the man, the management staff. Um, it, one really stands out to me. I mean, it's just, there's so many, but it was in my last year while I was working there as supporting the pediatric outpatient cancer center. And they'd been working on this problem for years and it was just devastating to them that the patients were who were coming in, these are, you know, kids and their families, often driving hours, were waiting for like anywhere from like 30 minutes to like five or six hours, unpredictably, multiple times a week to get their chemo or other infusions. And like they were trying to like, they worked on trying to solve this problem, but nothing was really having a significant inroad. And we pulled together this team, and I, it was great. I was really embodying this, like how could I create the framework and the structures for people to learn? And so we, we put out some goals there. And then I had the, the leadership team do a process walk. And they actually went to Gemba and were seeing things. And I just remember um, the physician leader's eyes lighting up when she was like, "Wait to, you know, to the scheduler. This is the view in York in you know, the, how you see things in the computer there. That's totally different than what I see. And I would assume that you had the same information that I did. And they're like, no. And like starting to see these things and then breaking it down. And then also, you know, bringing in different process improvement concepts to help them see potential different ways of how you can like bring out, you know, the people who are having retreat, they need blood draws first versus, you know, how do you streamline and, you know, do that, you know, bring a process set in mindset, but just bringing people to go to see and break down those barriers and, and work together was incredible. And over the course of, nine months, like we really drastically reduced that variation and people were more predictably being seen within an hour, sometimes sooner, but just, you know, they weren't getting like lost in the system in that same way. So, and just seeing that, uh, like the ahas happen for the physicians and nurses, the clinical staff and, and really collaborating in a way that they hadn't before was, it was just so powerful. Um, of course, there's so, there, you know, there's so many other um examples as well but that was that was sort of my you know the capstone of my time at Stanford children's and it was um, it was really special and also i'd just become a mom and i think yeah. me you know i just saw things in a different way especially like you know all these you know kid baby babies with cancer it was just really like so it was really passionate about this so it was great
1: yeah that's awesome you've done some nonprofit work um member of before can you talk to me a little bit about how that works sure. going and how you got involved?
2: Yeah, so I've been in, involved in two nonprofit organizations. Um, I was invited, at the same time I took the, the role transitioning from Stanford Children's Hospital to this uh, more senior director role um, at another healthcare organization. I was also invited to join the newly formed board committee of El Camino Hospital. And I served on that board committee for seven years, including while I was in Japan. You know, this is like early days when we're like, oh, calling me in by video, like that seems so like, you know, unique, whereas (laughs) whereas now it's like, you know, nothing. Uh, So that was a very rewarding time. And I learned so much about being on a nonprofit board and a healthcare system board. And it's also, you know, it was a, a community board. so there were a lot of government regulations um, and how to really um, come out at it, things from a governance standpoint, not a management standpoint, not a consultant standpoint, but really from that, um, that side of governance. And then five years ago, I was invited to join the board of the Mother's Milk Bank, which is a nonprofit in Northern California serving um, babies and their families who, um, well, I guess the babies who need um human breast milk, aren't able to get it for a variety of reasons, either they're in the NICU or at home. And so it's been a really, it's, you know, this is a very different, it's a very different nonprofit experience. It's a, we're a small board uh, made of, you know, local community members, all helping guide and steer the organization. And it's really been going through a transformation of being a more uh, localized uh, provider to really, you know, it's the, the production's expanded and it's really having a broad a broad reach. And we're, at the time of this recording, recruiting a new um, CEO role for the Mother's Milk Bank. So um, super exciting time. And I'm also, you know, learning a lot from hiring from, from that perspective of managing the board. I'm now the, um, the chair of the board as well.
1: How do you bring in what you've learned over the years into those yeah. organizations as a board member? Mm. Um, what do you think is helpful? Because that's part of podcast too is—is there's what's what can help some of the nonprofits or government agencies address some of these societal issues? Um, mm. And it's a it's a combination of all these different groups working together in a different way. And I, I think it's also yeah. the leadership pieces you were talking about earlier, and it's low issues and better ways of doing things, um, and governance you mentioned um, having structure in place like that yeah what did you have you seen or what have you helped kind of drive those two different organizations
2: so you know the the el camino hospital quality committee board was my first uh, board position so there's a lot of learning just about governance and and how the board committee works together Uh, for both of my board positions uh, i know one of the uh, the reasons that i was tapped was for my process and leadership mindset and and the skills that I bring and the work that I do. Uh, you know what I what I find is really effective is how do we no matter where we are, um, how do we ask more effective questions and how do we help ask those questions that um, probe deeper thinking so that we're not just making assumptions or seeing things from the surface? Um, some of the things that we did that I, I know as helpful in doing uh, at both organizations was, using better process behavior charts to, you know, I was inspired by Mark Graben's book <laughs> about how do you how do you look at data so you're not responding to, uh, so, sorry, measure, measures of success is Mark Graben's yeah, book. Success, right? uh, but how do you not be responding to just like normal variation? And because often just the graphs that are shown, like you could know, end up having a half hour conversation on something that's actually normal variation. So in bo- both organizations, I gave them Mark's book and I was like, please start using process behavior charts. So that was just bringing that process mindset to it. And then uh, what's been really just great from a learning perspective, as well as contributing as, as my role of the Mother's Milk Bank, when we came on board, the board was, when me when I and another um, person came on, the board was in a transition state of moving from what's known more as like a, a rowing board. So the board members really kind of doing more of the work to a steering board. And so uh, those of us that were the new members and some people who had been there before, really instrumental in like, let's shift the way the board is engaging with the organization. As the organization was growing, it needed less of the board members to do the actual work and become almost like stepping in as, you know a little bit in management roles to really being much more governance, strategic guidance and some oversight um, and that was a transition for people who had been on the board for many, many years, um, and it was a good learning for for me too about how do we, what does governance really mean, and how do we how do we show up differently when we're in a management role versus in a in a truly in a governance role. Yet, how can we always still be asking those questions, making you know, this is still the same thing, setting the direction, asking the questions, providing the support, um, and being clear on what our role and our purpose is. And that's you know, no matter what role we're in, that's really important to do. Like what is our purpose in this in this specific role? And so what are the behaviors and actions and things I need to say that are gonna um, be most effective? But that difference between rowing and steering was a real interesting learning um, experience for me. And um, but it has been a really powerful shift for the board.
1: I find it hard to not want to get in it. Fix, fix problems too. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I mean, there's there's always times, it's a, but it's the same thing as when you're in a management role, or when you're in like a continuous improvement, coaching, or consulting role. When is it? You're when is it needed for you to be jumping in? Is when is that the helpful thing? But when is it actually your what the more helpful thing to do is providing that direction and that guidance and allowing other people to do the management or to do the problem solving. So it's it's that same holding holding back you know we're we're in the search for an executive director a new CEO right now and so there the board members have had to step in a little bit more for some you know some of that rowing but it's an interim period um will we will we find that new um, CEO which is exciting
1: so here you know just kind of understanding from a board perspective if someone is on a board right now or looking to support a nonprofit and come a board member, then, um, appearing, you know, help them understand data and trends and patterns of data a little bit, but also, um, make sure they know what their role is and provide the right guidance. And maybe the leadership principles we talked about earlier would be something they should reflect on and say, are we setting good direction? Are we supporting our team members um, and helping them make sure that they are successful? And what they do, and telling them what to do.
2: Yeah. Anything else to add? Well, I think that's hard, right? So where where is it that you have to come down and like setting the clear expectations, but also giving people the authority and responsibility and space to manage things maybe in a different way than you might, but that are within bounds of still, you know, moving in in that right target. Um, I you know. I would say for people who are exploring being on a board, who are currently currently are having those conversations with your fellow board members about what is our type of board and what's our purpose is so important because sometimes people have different expectations of what the role of the board is, and when there's that misalignment, then you're really showing up in different ways that can be confusing to the to the organization. Actually, cause some um, conflict in terms of the board members themselves um, because there's just there's assumptions on what we should be doing. So that I, there's some good um, literature out there on the difference of a steering versus rowing board. That's it that can be really helpful. Uh, another thing too is to know, and this is a conversation we've had not on the El Camino board so much, but uh, so the, the health system board I was on, but the the smaller nonprofit is are we a are we a fundraising board or not? And so this organization doesn't need that of its um, board members. The you know the the function of the R organization is, you know, it it processes, it collects processes and distributes milk. So it really is almost like a mini manufacturing company or it is, but with a nonprofit angle. So we don't need as much, you know, high level fundraising from the board members. And so, um, knowing, you know, there's, so there are different ways because that you look for a different sort of, I guess, a type of person to be on your board. If you need a lot of high ticket, you know, fundraising. Versus where you need more of that strategic guidance and um, uh you know re- direction setting. So it's just also just other things to be thinking about. There's no right or wrong. It's just getting clarity on what's needed and what's the purpose, and then making sure that people all um, all are clear on that.
1: Yeah, I think that was something that's pretty eye-opened to me, was how many of the boards are the fundraising boards, mm. even a expectation of contribution as a board member to supply or support a lot of that mm. fundraising yeah. uh, individually so yeah i think that was uh something i was yeah. not familiar with until i started getting into a little bit further
2: yeah i mean we do have you know we all contribute but that's not the primary you know function of or expectation of of our of the way our board is structured so it's been a great learning process and i i love being able to volunteer In a way that finds like I feel like I'm able to apply my skill set and the things that I do professionally in a way to make meaningful impact for other organizations in a volunteer capacity. So I find that real very rewarding and kind of a fun hat to wear um, in a different way and allows me to have to practice too. How am I showing up differently in you know um, in a different role? So it's been it's been great.
1: No, and that actually makes me think a little bit differently about opportunities for people because that's what I've been trying to encourage as well is find an organization you love, go try to offer up your help or support more of like a consulting mm. role, but the board member role, I think is another one, especially people with leadership experience. And um, mm. I think that can be a really powerful way that they can contribute that maybe isn't, uh, doesn't require as much of their time or maybe more time, depending on how engaged yeah. uh, that board is. But um considering joining a board. I think that's a great opportunity for a lot of the community.
2: Absolutely. It's it's super rewarding. And um, it's a growth opportunity, a learning opportunity for you too. So um, it's a nice way to both contribute your knowledge and skills as well as um, and get something in return too. From growth oh, yeah, and <laughs> impact. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was president for a board uh, for a no for about five years and I learned a lot.
2: <laughs> yes, I know. Well, so I, I just stepped into this uh, yeah, I've been on the board for five years. I was the the vice chair for a few years, but it didn't really require anything. And I, I stepped into the the board chair position in the fall. And literally, like a month later, um, our our executive director resigned, and so you know we started the board the search. So it's been a it's a more been more intensive hands-on experience. Um, but you know that's what that's it's been a really good reminder that like the the leaders that I work with are also, you know, they're managing teams and they have unexpected personnel change as well. And that throws off their plan for their timing or the vision of things of what's going to happen. And so it's been actually a really um, positive reminder of when I'm working with, you know, leaders and organizations too of the unexpected things that happen. And just how do you how, how do you respond to your new current condition? And um, what do you let go of? What do you need to step into in a different way you know how are you still providing clarity and transparency of your decisions and your actions um so it's been a it's been a good sort of practice what you preach type of um experience
1: awesome you've already been going pretty long here um is there anything else you wanted to add or
2: i think that the, you know the one i've just been reflecting a lot on this the question that's been coming out of many conversations with leadership teams and individuals about, you know, we're moving into this new way of working, the new future. You know, it's it's sometimes we're in person, sometimes we're virtual, sometimes we're hybrid. And how do we still embody these lean leadership concepts of go what does like go see look like in there? And um, how can you still, you know, do these things? And I just, I keep going back to, it's always about the principles and the why and the purpose, how it manifests it may look different depending on your context. And so it means the same thing with any, you know, we look at tools and we're like, oh, we got to apply this tool. Well, the tool is for the certain, certain circumstance. Um, and so if we can just stay stay with the principles and sort of the purpose behind them and then be creative about how do okay, so how can I apply this principle of go see? What does go see mean in a virtual environment? What's my purpose when I go see or go to Gemba? What does it mean to go like check, in on people or to check on process how does that look in this new environment and so to not get so rigidly set on what how things looked in the past needs to look the same but the principles can still apply so i think that's just a really um i just want to leave our our listeners with that just the challenge of um knowing how things look and manifest may be different and may and will and will continue to change but the principles can guide us in really thinking about how to make um the best decision for our current condition.
1: Yeah, I think that's great advice to people. Do get wrapped up in the mechanics sometimes and lose sight of the principle. Yeah, you know the reason yeah. we have this exercise is to get people talking to each other, not to fill out the forms or the templates. Yeah. Like, no.
2: so we lose well, sight of that. <laughs> totally. I was just, I just this week and was one of the, my big projects last month was putting uh, leading putting together and then leading live a. Um, how to A3 masterclass with Asao Yoshino and this was driven out of just what I was seeing so much of people getting focused on just the tool and the template and getting kind of rigid around that and then forget not even realizing sort of the flexibility behind the the tool and so it was a really fun workshop to collaborate on with him someone was saying like how do I get away from being like a template zombie and I'm like yeah (laughs) this is the thinking process the tool is not the magic it's in no. the, it's in the, it's in the principles and the thinking behind it. So yeah, totally.
1: Template zombie. I like it.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's like template zombie. That's a good one.
1: <laughs> good. So how, how can, yeah. How can people get hold of you um, to, and learn about your events or tours or site in Japan trips, uh, book?
2: Yeah. Well, so many things, the best, you know, the sort of everything in one stop shop is my website. So K B J. Anderson with an O N K B J A N D E R S O N dot You can go back and dig into my blog archives for those early reflections of what I was learning in Japan. There's links to my book, Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn, which is available in audiobook, ebook, and paperback. You can get it on Amazon and many, um, you know, many other online retailers as well. Um, and then, you know, you can learn about how I how I work with clients. And sometimes I'm offering, you know, online collaboration, learning opportunities either led by me or me with Mr. Yoshino so that's always fun and of course my Japan study trips are on my website and then of course LinkedIn as well Um, that's a great place to connect and sort of stay up to date on everything that's happening Um, I'm on Twitter and YouTube as well so so many different places but go to kbjanderson.com and you will get access to everything from there
1: okay and I'll put those in the show notes as well okay great
2: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so
1: much for this time. It was wonderful. Oh, I'm so happy. A lot happy. of good learnings. And um, I think people enjoyed listening to this.
2: Oh, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to finally have uh, connect and have a conversation. Now we do get to grow our chain of learning, as I like to call it.
0: All right. So, that yeah. awesome.
2: Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, everyone.
0: Are you interested in learning more about Lean and Six Sigma? Or are you looking to expand your existing skills to apply them to environmental impacts at your work or in the local community? Check out our free online course called Lean Six Sigma and the Environment on Thinkific.com. We'll teach you about the Lean Forms of Waste and Waste Walks, which stands for Water, Air Emissions, Solid Waste, Toxins, and Energy. We'll go over examples of reducing electricity and solid waste teach you how to involve your facilities in environment safety and health personnel. We'll provide guidance on how to green your 5S and lean Kaizen events and many other tools specific to finding environmental opportunities. Learn more at lean6sigmaenvironment.org.